Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The last two Sundays, we have been considering joy by looking into the Psalms. Before that, back in June, we looked at lament from the Psalms. Again, let me emphasize what a wonderful resource the Psalms are for the Christian life. Within them is contained the the highest of human joy, the lowest of human despair, and a lot of stuff in between. And so if you're not regularly in the habit of using the Psalms in your prayer life, in your devotional life, I would encourage you to adopt them. This week I found this really wonderful description of the Psalms, which I thought summed them up well. The writer says, we meet in the Psalms real people who face suffering, injustice, anguish, despair, and death. Rather than resign themselves to passive, fatalistic submission, they wrestled with the Lord and questioned his promises. In the process of wrestling, faith triumphed and gained a many-faceted brilliance. They weren't afraid to wrestle with God. We shouldn't be afraid to wrestle with God. They field-tested his promises, if you will. But in the end, through that process, their faith came out stronger, deeper, and more brilliant. And God showed himself to be faithful. So for these past couple of weeks, we've been wrestling with joy. We've been asking a lot of questions about joy. And perhaps you've seen in your life the presence of joy or maybe the absence of joy. Maybe the instability of joy. Maybe you've seen that you've confused joy with with something else. The main point that I've been arguing for is that Christian joy is not happenstance. It's not just something that we stumble upon from time to time and call ourselves lucky. It really can be a, a constant feature in our lives in good times and in bad Happiness is different than joy. Happiness is that emotion we experience when things go well for us, when good things happen to us, when our circumstances are favorable. The problem with that kind of happiness, and I think that's often what the world is seeking more so than joy, that kind of happiness is really pretty unstable. When our circumstances become unfavorable, when bad things seem to outweigh good things, a happiness can dissipate. But biblical joy is of this different quality. It's something else altogether. It's something that endures even when our circumstances are bad. It's interesting that Jesus in the Gospel of John spoke more and more about joy as he got closer to the cross. And that the Apostle Paul wrote his most joyful letter, Philippians, from a prison cell when he was close to his own death. So joy has a different source than our present circumstances. Well, last Sunday we looked at Psalm 16 
And we sought to understand what kind of things are supporting joy. And we use this construction analogy. What's the, the supporting structure, the post, if you will, that, that hold up joy in our lives? Because Christian joy doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's cultivated, it's constructed, it's supported by something. And so we looked, Psalm 16, verses two through eight at these four supporting structures of joy. They each had a unique name. We saw that we needed this radical singularity of focus on God because he's the only source of joy. And we needed a a people to party with because joy is something that is uh, sustained in community with other people in our lives who are also delighting in God. And we saw thirdly that, that the contentment that belongs to our priestly portion, the way that God provides for us is something that's very necessary to uphold joy in our lives. And finally, we saw that there was a counselor worth staying up for, worth listening to in the hours of the night, that his instructions, his commands, his teachings are something that gives us joy and a stable joy at that. And so if you'd like to hear more about those supporting structures, that first part of Psalm 16, the sermons on our website, I encourage you to go back and to listen to it. Well, if you brought your Bibles or your iPhones today, go ahead and open up to Psalm 16. We're going to stay in that and look at the end of it. Um, Grammatically, when we look at the psalm, verses two through eight, which was last week, um, support the joy that is expressed in verse nine. And if you remember, I I held up verse nine as the high watermark of the psalm. Because there the psalmist declares this very confident joy. He says, therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Now, as in many parts of scripture, when you see the therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's a very important word. It connects it to what's gone before. And so the therefore of verse nine here is showing us that all the stuff in the beginning of the psalm, verses two through eight, has been this supporting structure. It's led up to this declaration of joy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on a couple more verses. And in verse 10, we see another reason why he is so joyful. He begins verse 10 with the word for or because. He's also showing us another cause for the joy that's held up in verse 9. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Verses 10 and 11. Have you ever seen those paintings that are like optical illusions? You look at them and one picture seems pretty obvious to you. And then um, the longer you look at it, you realize that it's two pictures in one, that one thing's also another. Well, Psalm 16 verse 10 is like one of those optical illusions. It's two pictures in one. Now, as Christians who have read the New Testament, we're immersed in that story. We're trained to see this verse of Psalm 16 in a particular way. That's the picture that would jump out to us on the page. But King David, who wrote the psalm, and the Jewish people who used it in their worship, they would have seen another picture more easily. So I want to actually start with the picture that they would have seen, the thing that would have jumped off the page to them that would have been pretty obvious. It's it's likely what David, or at least partly what David meant in the immediate context in which he wrote it. But to see this picture, you have to go back to verse 1 of the psalm. It begins with these words. 
Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. We've been using this psalm as um, this place of joy, to understand joy, and yet it's interesting that it begins as a cry for help. It begins almost in this way of lament. Preserve me, O God. Keep me safe. I'm finding my refuge in you. From what is he asking God to preserve him? He feels threatened in some way. That's what's making him cry out and write down this psalm. What is it? Well, we don't actually learn the answer to that until verse 10, where he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's interesting, by the time he gets to verse 10, He's not actually asking God for anything anymore. He's really declaring confidently the faithfulness that he knows about God. And it's that faithfulness of verse 10, this confidence that he has that God will pull him through that again supports the joy of verse nine. I'm joyful because you're delivering me, because you won't abandon me to Sheol. Now here's the key question. What did David mean? What would the, the people of um, Israel have understood that phrase, not abandoning him to Sheol? Well, it seems that David was experiencing a threat to his life. That's why he's saying, preserve me in the beginning. And likely, if we know David's life, likely it had to do with enemies. That fits a lot of David's story. It fits a lot of what he prays for in the Psalms, constantly about enemies pursuing him and asking God to deliver him. It also fits um, a use of the word Sheol, that it was sometimes used to describe the place of the wicked and to describe this sense of, of being delivered from evil people who are trying to take your life. And so in essence, David is saying, I know God will not let those who threaten to take my life actually take me down. He will spare me. He will preserve me. And so some have suggested that David's thinking here is not about overcoming death in a final sense, but rather being preserved from this immediate threat to his life. Then he continues on in verse 11 and he says, you make known to me the path of life. So he's contrasting death and life. Again, probably not in this final sense, but rather instead of experiencing this premature death because the enemies are coming at me, I know that God will preserve my life. He will show me the path of life, not death. He's going to give me a good long life. And that is what makes me feel joyful. So that's one picture that Psalm 16 shows us. That's probably the one that was more obvious to them. And I think just taking their picture at face value, uh, we can relate to that as a supporting structure of joy. Most humans, when you really press down, fear death. Particularly, we fear an untimely death. We might have a sense of peace that, you know, after we've lived a good long life, um, that we might feel more okay about that, but something coming in prematurely and and robbing us of life, that can be a very, um, very scary experience. Some of you in this room have had actual near-death experiences. Maybe it was an illness that God brought you through. Maybe it was an accident uh, that, that happened to you, but he preserved you. And on the other side of that kind of experience, um, there can be a, a fresh wave of joy. 
There can be a, a sense of, of comfort of, of God does have his sovereign hand on our lives and, and nothing's going to snatch us from his hands that he has numbered our days. He knows the day of our death. And so we may experience certain threats to our life, but nothing can take us home until it's God's will. And there is a peace in that. There is a joy in that. A lot of scary things in life, but it's a great comfort to know that, that God will preserve us until the day that he has sovereignly decided that we will die. This first picture, Psalm 16, it's not a bad one. Definitely can support joy in the way we've just looked at. But there's something missing. You see, David eventually died. Yes, God preserved him from an untimely death. He didn't let David's enemies take him down. We learn in 1 Kings that he actually did get to die peacefully as an old man. But he still died. His body saw decay. It rotted in the grave. Over a year ago, um, I was in Jerusalem with my brother who's visiting today. And we got to visit one place that they thought might be David's tomb. And I remember that there were, there were Orthodox Jews there praying in this very holy site. Interestingly enough, it's in the same location, kind of below um, the site that many Christians believe was the site of the upper room, where Jesus celebrated um, the Last Supper and where quite possibly the disciples were gathered on the day of Pentecost uh, when the Holy Spirit came. So David's dead. He, he's in the grave. Everyone knows it. And that presents a bit of a problem. It, it makes his words, when we go back and look at them in verse nine, feel a little misplaced when he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But God did eventually allow David to go to the grave and to see corruption. And so this confidence that God will preserve us from an untimely death can be a source of joy. And yet we know we're still going to die. Okay, he brought me through that one, but I know that, that death is coming. And we all face that. Every human being faces the reality of our own death, and that has this ability to eat away at our joy, to eat away at the foundation. No matter how good a life we have, no matter how much joy we've been able to cultivate, we know that, that death is coming for us all. And so if that picture of Psalm 16 was all we had, it really wouldn't be a good source in the end. But Psalm 16 verse 10 actually calls out for a deeper interpretation. It, it calls out for another picture. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this particular verse was like a, a pencil sketch of something good, but not quite finished, not filled in yet. The final picture was going to be like this striking oil painting with rich palettes of color coming off the canvas, drawing us in with their beauty to a whole nother reality. But it was about a thousand years from when David put down that sort of cryptic line about not abandoning him to Sheol and the day of Pentecost when the great unveiling happened. That was the moment when the sheet was pulled off of the painting and the Jewish people saw and understood for the first time what these enigmatic words of verse 10, Psalm 16, were actually pointing to. We read about the story in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has come in great power. 
He has filled the disciples and given them this miraculous gift of language. They are able to speak in languages they do not know for the explicit purpose that pilgrims in the city can hear the wonders of God proclaimed in their native tongue. It is this reversal of the Tower of Babel story. If you know that story and how God confused the languages, all of a sudden he's overcoming that barrier of language so that the gospel can go forth. So people are experiencing this phenomenon and it's quite spectacular. There's Jews from all over um, the, the empire at that time from many different languages gathered for the festival and they're filling the streets of Jerusalem and all of a sudden they see these disciples coming out and they're hearing these languages and saying, what's going on? I'm hearing my own language spoken to me about God and they can't make sense of it. And so Peter stands up and he begins to preach. It's one of the great uh, sermons in the book of Acts. There are many of them. And his audience is Jewish. And so what's he going to do? But he's going to take their story. He's going to explain to them what's happening in light of their story by using scriptures from the Old Testament. And so he begins immediately with this, this spirit thing. That's really weird. So they're not drunk. I know it's nine o'clock in the morning, but here's, here's the way we deal with that. And he goes to Joel and he says, Joel predicted ahead of time that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. But then he goes to the heart of his message and he talks about Jesus. And just as a side note, when the Holy Spirit is stirred up, when the Holy Spirit is doing quiet things or powerful things, the Holy Spirit's job, his, his function is to point to Jesus. That's why he comes into us and comes into the world. That's why he inspires these miracles and these great things is to point to Jesus and the gospel. And so the heart of the message, let's listen in, Acts 2 Verses 22 and following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter is retelling the basic facts about Jesus, what was known about him, some of which they already know. He was this man, he's from Nazareth, he, he does these mighty works, but then he also adds some theological perspective, doesn't he? He's interpreting that in light of God and who God is. He's saying it was God who was working the miracles through Jesus, i.e. you should have been listening to him. It was God who ultimately planned his death. Don't think this was some accident. No, God had this in mind beforehand. And yet, you're still guilty of it. And yet, you're still responsible. His blood is on your hands. How about that for a confrontational sermon? But Peter then continues. Having mentioned the death of Jesus, he proclaims this thing that had recently happened. He says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, for him to be held by death. Now here's the key question. Why was it not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Our picture after Christian theology for 2,000 years, we, we know that, well, he was God. He was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Of course he can't be held by death. But that's not the way they were thinking quite yet. The answer for them, why he couldn't be held by death, was because he was God's Messiah. He was God's chosen king. That's the, the Jewish categories that would have been forming for them. 
That's the point Peter's making. He's God's Messiah. So it was impossible for him to be held by death. And let me prove it to you. And where does he go? What scripture out of all the Old Testament does he pull out but Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11? For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh will also dwell in hope. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You see what's going on here? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rightly understands that David in Psalm 16, verse 10, was not ultimately talking about himself. Now, in a limited sense, he may have had this sense of, yes, I'm being preserved from this untimely death for my enemies. We're not sure exactly how much David knew if he sensed there was something more to his words or if he was just focused on the thing and God was prophesying through him, even though he didn't know it. We know that can happen. But whatever it was, his words pointed to someone greater than himself. And Peter will go on and explain in verse 29, Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now go back to the geography I mentioned in Jerusalem. They've just come out from what was possibly the upper room and possibly there was the site right here of David's tomb. Could have been another place. Maybe it was around the block, but he's basically saying, listen, we know David's tomb. It's right over here. It's right down the road. He's dead. He couldn't have been talking about himself. So Peter continues, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on the throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is saying there's no way these words ultimately were just about David. They pointed to someone greater than himself, one of his own descendants, connecting it back to that promise to David that someone would sit on the throne forever. He's connecting those two things together. God would provide for someone, raise him up. And ultimately it's Jesus. He's the only one that can say these words, God will not abandon me to the grave or amount me, the holy one, to see corruption. Jesus went into the grave, did he not? But God did not abandon him there. Jesus went into the grave, but he did not rot in the grave. His body did not see corruption. It did not see decay. Instead, God raised him up. And he didn't raise him up with his old body exactly. It was a, it was a renewed body. It was an imperishable body. It was a resurrection body. And so Peter is presenting this not so much to argue for the fact of the resurrection. That's what we have to do. We have to go and convince people that the resurrection actually happened. But again, he's talking to this Jewish audience. He, he just saw the resurrection. So it, that's not a, a question in his mind. What he's trying to argue for is the resurrection is showing us that this man, this crucified one, no one saw this coming would be the Messiah because it was impossible for death to hold him. And if he's the Messiah, if he's God's stamped seal of approval king to rule the whole world, that means that everything Jesus said and did has now been validated. All of his miracles, all of his teaching, and including his words about the forgiveness of sin. It's all 
being held up by this resurrection. So this was Peter's sermon. Psalm 16 verse 10 is the linchpin and the sermon had a powerful effect. The people gathered around were cut to the heart. They were convicted by this and they said to Peter, what shall we do? How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this great announcement that Jesus Christ, the crucified one, raised up, is the Messiah, the Lord of the world? How do we deal with it? And Peter gives us, it's a great just summary of what it means to respond to the gospel. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have repentance, you have faith, you have baptism, you have the Holy Spirit. So what does this tell us about joy? How does this help us? Turns out that David's source of joy was very well placed. Regardless of how much he understood what he was saying, he was right to ground his joy in a God who would somehow deal with death who would take away its sting. Now for David, it hadn't come to pass yet. For David, it was the pencil sketch. It hadn't been unveiled. But when Jesus died and he went into the tomb and he came out of the tomb on the third day, death was finally defeated. The ultimate threat to joy had been removed. And so now whether it's an untimely death or whether it's a death in old age, neither one of them can steal joy from us anymore. We don't have that looming threat coming backwards towards us and saying, no, you can't really be joy because your, life's unshake, your life could be shaken, it could be taken, it could, it could go down. We have this great confidence that death has been cast down. And now joy can not be removed from us. It's secure. And this was the message of our gospel reading today. In John 16, Uh, Jesus is getting his disciples ready for all that's going to happen, for how he's going to die. That's that whole passage about you're going to feel sorrow. Everyone else is going to rejoice because they've they've killed me finally. But you're going to feel sorrow, but then something's going to happen. There's going to be this great reversal. You'll see me again after the resurrection. And what does he say? John 16, verse 22, and no one will take your joy from you. And so the resurrection of Jesus, friends, that's the ultimate foundation of our joy. We've been talking about a lot of things that we can cultivate it and construct it with, but that is the bottom, concrete, unshakable foundation. It removes every threat that our joy can be taken from us. And that opens up all sorts of possibilities for what joy can be. It has no limits. Think about it, before the resurrection, uh, it was like our joy was experienced in a walled garden. Now, there was joy. It could be very pleasant, but there were boundaries. It could only extend so far. But in the resurrection, the wall has come down, and we peek through to the other side, and we see this vast landscape out before us. It's immense. It's ongoing. And I think this is what David begins to give words to, again, in this kind of veiled way, but in verse 11, some of the sweetest words in the Psalms. He says, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David recognized that in God's presence, literally before his face, that's the words used there, before his face was full and abundant joy. 
And he saw that at God's right hand, there were pleasures. That word can be translated pleasant. It's related back in verse six to the beautiful inheritance. And so before the face of God, we have this limitless joy. And at the hand of God, we have this pleasure and this eternal beauty without end. Those are the kinds of things that open up before us when death has been removed, when the dark clouds break and we see the sunrise on this new day of joy. This joy can be experienced right now. Because even right now in this life, with all its twists and turns, with all its ups and downs, with all the circumstances that change, we can actually live life before the face of God. The Latin phrase, you may have heard it, the quorum Deo. We, we can live life that way. One reason we know this is in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is using this really big analogy involving Moses and how Moses stood before the face of God and he announces that that's now true of us in Christ, that in Christ the veil has been removed and he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Right now, we can experience life before the face of God and the joy that is found there. But the very last word of the psalm is this word forever. David somehow recognized that joy wasn't going to be brought to an end by death. Because he says that there's, there's this fullness of joy, the right hand that pleasures forevermore. It's going to continue. And so we experience it now, but as we look ahead into the coming age where joy will be magnified, Revelation 21, 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, I think they're an extended commentary on Psalm 16, verse 11. In those chapters, we're told about this new creation. We see the city radiating with the beauty of God. We see the water of life flowing out from the throne of God. The tree of life that had been removed from us in the garden is there again and it's offering its fruit in every season. And the leaves of that tree are for healing of the nations. And then we're told this wonderful little phrase that we will see the face of God. We will see the face of God. And before that face, we will experience this unimaginable joy and pleasure and beauty. Over these weeks, I've been suggesting that joy is something more than happiness, something more than favorable circumstances of what happens to us. Christian joy has a different source. But I want to amend that just slightly to say that joy is actually based on circumstances. It's just that there are higher circumstances. You see, something actually did happen to Jesus Christ in history. He was crucified, buried, and rose again. And if you place your faith in him as Lord and Savior, if you respond with that repentance and baptism and trusting in Jesus and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, then something happens to you. His death, his resurrection becomes the defining circumstance of your life. Through faith, what happened to him happens to you. You actually become united to him in death and resurrection. His relationship to the Father and all that that entails is now your relationship to the Father. His internal inheritance of joy becomes your inheritance, friends. 
And so we'll continue in this life to have good circumstances and bad circumstances, but we can know with confidence that something much more important and enduring has happened to us and that our defining circumstance is not up for grabs. It has been settled in Christ and that is the foundation of our joy. Let's pray. And so, Father, I would pray that by your Spirit, poured freshly into the minds and hearts of your people this morning, we might march out of here with a confident joy, with a sense of a rock-solid foundation below all of the twists and turns and the tumult of this life, that there would be something solid and unmoving, and that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, the gift of his Spirit, and how we're united to him. Father, would you help us walk on this strong foundation that in this world that really only knows happiness, the ups and downs, we might show forth the joy that comes from Christ. For we pray it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.